when you're trying to maximize your value, um, you have to decide why am I doing that and what am I doing it for? Because you can maximize value by being very uh, cheap with the maintenance decisions, by deferring maintenance, by deferring community upgrades, by not doing a newsletter, by not making it community oriented. And at the end of the day, your cash flow is going to be really high, but that's not going to last for very long. And then you're going to start to have turnover. You're going to start to have um, complaints and you start to going to have a bad reputation and you're not going to be able to attract good tenants anymore. You're not going to be able to command good rents. So you can see that those are both sides of the exact same valuation equation. And you have to decide as an investor, am I here for the long term or the short term? It is a common saying amongst real estate investors that you make money when you buy, not when you sell. While this catchy phrase has value, it fails to convey how easy it is to lose money through poor property management. Whether you self-manage or hire a professional, it is important to understand how to navigate the common pitfalls and challenges with rental properties without losing your shirt or your mind. That's why you have tuned in to Maximizing Your Property Value, the apartment owner's guide to operating rental properties as a successful business. I'm your host, John Stiles, real estate agent and team leader of the VIP Real Estate Group at Bridge Realty. As a current multifamily investor and former property manager myself, I understand the headaches and difficulties of keeping an investment property from becoming a money pit and time sucker. It takes a solid business plan, it takes tested systems, and it takes key team members to actually find success. So let's take a deep dive and maximize your property value. Welcome back everybody to another episode of Maximizing Your Property Value. I'm so glad you joined us today, and I'm also excited to introduce you to my guest today, who is Tom Sedlak. Tom, thanks for coming in today. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, and Tom is the owner of 33rd Company and HandyQuick, which is a maintenance company here in the Twin Cities, mm -hmm. and I'm excited to learn more about your company and the services that you offer. So Tom, why don't you take a moment and tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your company? Oh yeah, thanks so much. Well, Twin uh, 33rd Company, uh, right off the bat, was founded in the Twin Cities back in the early 90s, and we're a multifaceted property management company. We do single-family home, uh, residential home rental management. We've got about 500 properties around the Twin Cities, as well as our branch office in Kansas City. Uh, we do homeowner association management, and we also do commercial property management, and we've got several thousand uh, association and commercial properties that we manage in the Twin Cities. Okay. Um, well, that's uh, really interesting as far as having two different locations. And what would you say is um, kind of your uh, balance of portfolio? You have um, X amount of properties here in the Twin Cities and X amount in your other location? Or? Well, we started actually our, our Kansas City branch uh, sort of as a, a fun uh, adjunct uh, to what we were already doing in the Twin Cities. We uh, had friends down there. We traveled down uh, to Kansas City quite a lot. And uh, it just seemed natural that, hey, we're here. We might as well open up a branch office. So the entirety of our business plan down there was to simply put up a web page and uh, optimize it and wait uh, for the phone to, to finally ring. After about 18 months of good SEO uh, with our website, uh, the phone actually started to ring consistently. And so we opened up operations, and we do uh, rental management down there presently. So, okay. Yeah. 
Wonderful. And you've mentioned kind of a, a wide range of types of properties you service between single family and up to commercial and HOAs. Yeah. Is there um, an ideal clientele um, or property size that you like to work with? Well, as far as the rental side, um, I think we found we represent a lot of investors and we also own properties as well. But on the single family home side, those are uh, turning out to be quite outstanding investments. And there's a little bit of a difference between multifamily and single family. And I think the difference is there's a little bit more stability in pricing with single family homes. You're also able to sell uh, at comp rates or at comp uh, prices versus a, uh, a cap rate that you'd typically use for a multifamily investment property. And I also think that the potential or the ability for developers to overbuild uh, or provide too much supply to the single-family home market is very limited. So you're not going to have a lot of builders rushing in to build inventory, unlike uh, multifamily. In fact, one of the, one of the analogies, that I, analogies that I use on the multifamily side is if you've got developer A, B, C, and D, uh, uh, and they're all um, doing an analysis of the market and looking at the cap rates or looking at the absorption and vacancy factors and all of that, uh, and they all come to the conclusion that the Twin Cities needs another 100,000 units. Well, guess what? All four of those developers are going to be building 100,000 units. So it's not going to take more than a few years before now you have um, uh, oversupply on the multifamily side. And that's where you start to see the nine-month uh, rent-free, you know, no screening, you know, pets <laughs> welcome. You know, all the incentives come out of the woodwork to try and bring in uh, tenants. And I think that's one of the one of the issues if you're a multi a multifamily investor is to be careful where you are entering that market if you're not already experienced because it is a pendulum that goes back and forth depending on whether it's you know, depending on where the market is and if it's either an overbuilt or underbuilt situation. On the single family home side, the nice thing there is you can buy onesie twosies. The management is definitely harder. Uh, I think we found that one of the most difficult properties to manage uh, period is the single family home. Because, uh, and for example, we have 500 of them scattered around the Twin Cities area. Uh, they all have different exteriors, different interiors, different lots, different uh, characteristics. Some have attached garage, some are detached garages. Paint codes are different, the carpet's different, all the appliances are different. You end up rolling up your sleeves and doing a onesie-twosie uh, type of management style in order to manage those properly. And then you still have all this, the same basic uh, fundamentals of, of tenant management, which is tenant screening and, and uh, qualifying and applications and all of that, and then managing the tenancy throughout. So it's a lot more details for a manager to do, um, but uh, the end result is it allows uh, the single-family home market to become an investor market as well. Yeah. yeah. And one thing you mentioned earlier was that you, you find that single-family homes are more stable in, do you mean in terms of rental prices, or what, what do you mean by that? I think they're more stable because you don't see the huge price swings as you do in the multifamily because of the developer uh, inputs uh, into the system. And uh, I think it's better also because it's a more flexible investment. It's potentially easier to sell a single-family home or to do a 1031 exchange and, and slide into different investment properties um, because you can sell at a comp rate. Because the the market will always buy it back as an owner-occupied home versus, you know, is it is it vacant? What's the rental history? Whatever, you know, all those questions that typically an investor goes through, 
you can avoid all of that and simply put it up as a market rate sale. Okay. Yeah, well, that's there's definitely you know pros and cons to each aspect of investing mm -hmm. there. So, um, just a little bit more about your company. What would you say is kind of uh, the thing that sets you apart from the other management uh, companies that are out there that we can choose from? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the process uh, orientation of our company really is is what sets us apart. You know, I'm a former Navy pilot. I used to fly back in the '80s. Uh, off of an aircraft carrier, and I tell you, you don't even get close to an airplane without a checklist. And I learned that uh, then, and I still embrace that uh, today. Uh, everything we do is checklist-based, and especially with the single-family home management, it's so important to just follow through and do every single item and make sure that you get it all completed so that you don't have things falling through the cracks. Uh, just something simple as, oops, we forgot to put a lockbox on the, on the door with the keys in it, can really throw a wrench into not just the property manager's schedule, but everybody else that's involved with that property, from vendors to um, uh, to realtors that are doing walkthroughs and doing CMAs or whatever, uh, and um, and it, it just makes such a difference when you have a checklist-based approach to property management. Yeah. So would you say that your checklists have what? have made you really succeed with all these single-family properties? Because you mentioned earlier that, you know, they're a little bit more difficult because they're mm -hmm. all the differences. Yep. So is the checklist what kind of helps to systematize that? Yes, it helps systematize it. It helps to flush out uh, issues. You know, and there are some items that aren't going to apply to some houses, absolutely. But the fact that you have a comprehensive checklist and that you follow it means that you're going to... Uh, take care of a business 100% of the time without any, any issues. And by the time the tenant gets the keys, uh, then they realize, wow, you know, there's even a, a bag of cookies sitting on the counter as a welcome gift when they uh, first check in and uh, walk through their, their home. I think recognizing that rentals is, uh, is a choice activity. People rent not because they have to, but because they want to, because it gives them a flexible lifestyle. It gives them... Um, the ability to mix and match and grow their family maybe uh, in different homes and not be locked into one that may become obsolete for them, you know, as their, as their family grows or their needs change. And rentals allows them to do that. Job movement, uh, uh, relocations, um, you know, job changes. Um, there's so much going on in people's lives that sometimes locking in to a purchase isn't always the right choice. We found that the tenants that we screen and place are some of the most responsible people that we've ever met. And we do set very high screening guidelines, but we also treat the homes and the tenants as valued customers. And I think that's a fundamental problem with landlords out there today is that they don't look at the home as a long-term great place to live. They would never move into that home themselves. That's, that's a red flag right there. Yeah. Uh, and they don't look at the tenant as being uh, someone that needs or deserves customer service. And those are two of the biggest mistakes we see out there right now. I would say that the majority of lawsuits, tenant-related, you know, 504B, you know, landlord-tenant lawsuits that do go to court are generally precipitated by an action, an inappropriate action on the part of the landlord and not the tenant. Uh, whether it's uh, maintenance that is not done or intentionally deferred because the landlord doesn't want to invest money in the property, or there's a fundamental uh, allowance in the lease that's not honored by the landlord. 
uh, or there's an uh, uh, undocumented security deposit withhold. You know, the list is very long of what an uneducated, unexperienced landlord uh, can do to cause a problem with a tenancy. And usually they're not familiar with good business practice, good customer service. They're not familiar with the laws, the landlord-tenant laws. They have an office max lease. It's a very long list of things that they do wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to dig into some of those checklists some more. Sure. Just so I can, and our audience can kind of think better about this. Mm -hmm. So how would you maybe split up these? Do you have, you know, a checklist for maybe the move-in walkthrough or you yes. have a checklist for screening tenancy? So what are some of the major categories that you break this down into? Yeah, so we have uh, all of the above. So every single process, defined process, has a supporting checklist to it. And some of the checklists are actually even automated on our website. So, for example, if a tenant wants to do a self-show, uh, we have wireless lock boxes that are integrated with our website. A tenant can log in uh, to our website and they can put in all of their information, their income, their um, uh, whether they, they have any criminal background or not, pets, pet requirements. They can put all that in and ef effectively what they've done is they pre-screened themselves. And then they can get a showing. And so we're trusting them. They, have, they obviously have to put in a driver's license and a credit card, but then they can get a lockbox code straight away and while they're on the curb with their iPhone, they can do all of that, and then they can go right into the property and see it. Because, again, we have to respect the fact that the tenants have lives, they have time constraints, they have customer service needs just like any other customer, and they need to see the properties uh, expeditiously so that we can rent to them expeditiously as well. Um, but, but that checklist right there is already the foundation of the screening, and now when we do the actual screening, much of that information uh, at least in the preliminary form has been provided, and then we just confirm that information and also pull the credit scores and everything else, and it makes it much faster. Okay. Well, before we go on on this topic of checklists, mm -hmm. I just want to ask you more about the automated showing because I've heard of it happening, yes. but I haven't. I don't know if I've talked to somebody who's actually implementing it. So how, yes. when did you start doing that? We and, started doing that about five or six years ago. So, oh, really? So uh, we've uh, uh, embraced that technology um, we get owner concurrence that we can and are allowed to do self-shows. It uh, eliminates the need for um, uh, a tenant that just wants to just do a quick walkthrough to just to see if the floor plan is even close to what they're looking for without having to jump through hoops. And in fact, the uh, showing is a requirement. We won't rent to a tenant until they or a designated representative has actually seen and walked the property just to make sure that it is something that they, uh, that they want and it is a fit for them. Um, and then the uh, automated lockbox, it's a wireless box, uh, and it connects, like I said, to our uh, website, and it's a very, uh, very smooth process, very uh, smooth system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you uh, found any owners who are scared of the risks, or have you found any risks that are, you know, are real? No, we really haven't. Um, because of the fact that we are taking preliminary screening data from the tenant, as well as a, a credit card and a driver's license number, uh, we do know that they are at least pre-screened to an adequate level where we're, we're going to be able to do the, the showing. The lockbox itself tracks uh, the codes and tracks the entry, and so we can trace back every showing right back to the tenant that was there. It's a discrete code that changes uh, with each time that a showing is authorized, so there's no way they can go back and use a code because it expires very quickly after they get it. 
And so there's a lot of security built in, but of course there's always a risk. You know, there's always a risk someone can, uh, can uh, access a home. There's a risk that someone can open up an open window and climb in and, and, and burglarize a home too. So, <laughs> uh, but you have to weigh the risk with the, uh, the, the customer service benefit. And so we do a good job of, of that with our owners, letting them know that this is what we do and why we do it. We won't do self-showings when it's occupied, obviously. Mm -hmm. So it's only when the home is vacant and it's rent-ready and showable that we will actually do that. And then uh, it makes it very uh, very easy and very quick for the tenants to, to eyeball the property and get going. Yeah. yeah. Have you found, uh, is the technology for that to be... Um very cost effective or is it is it a big investment uh, a lot of uh, we're members of the National Association of Residential Property Managers and that's about a 5,000 member association and just about every management company out there is doing self showings in some way shape or form and they can use different boxes there's a actually a National Association of Realtor NAR Century Lock box which is integrated with a, a company called Rently uh, we have another company that's called ShowMojo that uh, supports uh, self-showings. There's also a Rently box uh, directly that's a, a, a keyed-down box that has predefined codes already programmed into it. So it's a very common thing in property management. It's not so common with realtors because the realtors want to make sure that they, the agent representative is also there with the prospective buyers uh, to show the property. And so there are two agents involved typically in a buy-sell uh, buy transaction. On the rental side, because of the margins and the costs of, of uh, the fees that you get, there's just simply not enough money to support uh, a multi-faceted approach. And so the tenants typically are representing themselves uh, and they come in and they're just doing their own showings and looking for what, what fits them. Yeah. Well, I can definitely see how, um, well, eliminating the leasing agent it can be very cost effective to yeah. the management company, and I don't know if that gets passed on to the owner or. But either way, it's it does it's, in lower fees. Okay, yeah. Yeah. so yeah. yeah, well, very good. Um, well, let's let's go back to the uh, task list or checklist discussion, and what is maybe another uh, process that you have detailed out. Well, like the move-out inspection, um, we have a very detailed inspection sheet that we go through, and we also use um, an, an, an application that has it embedded, and so we can take pictures, write up discrepancies, and do it all in one very quick walkthrough. And we don't do any decision-making at the property. We simply take pictures and document the condition of the property. And then when it goes back, we use that same move-in checklist that was documented in a similar manner uh, and just compare them and we look for differences. And what we're looking for is something above and beyond ordinary wear and tear. So we obviously uh, allow you know, the use of a home, the, the normal uh, considerate you know, wear and tear of a home. But you know, if there's a hole in the wall or if there's uh, you know, something that's uh, torn off or a smoke detector's been removed, um, you know, we would annotate those um, issues, and then, if applicable, we would charge back to the security deposit. And then we would charge it back with quotes from vendors, uh, yeah. and um, it's all well documented. And then we would even invite the tenant to come in and review it if they dispute it. So if they dispute the security deposit, we'll sit down and say, here's all the charges, here's all the quotes, here's all the pictures, and all the documentation is right there. And, uh, and then it makes it so much easier to go through it and then have a discussion. Yeah. 
You know, I've heard that uh, the uh, withholding of security deposits mm -hmm. can be one of the highest disputed yes. things with tenants and residents when they move out. So what you're describing about the documentation, uh, obviously that's going to really help out the landlord and owner's uh, case. Right. Because if you have a reputable management company, tenants are going to know that. And they're going to know that renting from a management company is way better than trusting a private individual that's trying to manage their single uh, home uh, and doesn't know anything about the laws or appropriate you know, withholds for security deposits. It's much safer to rent from an established management company that has a good reputation. And I think that makes a big difference. And so we don't want to break that trust with the tenants. And in fact, we have a better uh, flow of good tenants coming our way because of that. If you're a responsible individual looking to rent for you and uh, for yourself or for uh, others that are with you, you want to make sure that the maintenance is going to be taken care of. You want to make sure that your security deposit is going to be properly put into a trust account. You want to make sure that the documentation is always going to be that the lease is there. And you want to make sure that you're renting from someone that's not going to try and pull the rug out from you at the end of the tenancy. And it doesn't happen that often, but I think it does happen very much so with independent landlords, or more so, I should say. Um, and you just have to be careful because you don't know who you're really doing business with. Yeah, I mean, a, a large property management company has a lot more of a reputation mm -hmm. on the line exactly. uh, to, to keep. So Exactly, yeah. Um, one of the things I want to talk about is um, problems that you've been able to solve. Uh, I think the role of a property manager is often the problem solver. Mm -hmm. um, so what's a, a recent problem that you were able to solve, and what did you take away from the situation? How did you learn from it? Oh, well, you're right. Uh, problems come across your desk every day. Um, a lot of times the problems boil down to communication and documentation. Uh, maybe a tenant hasn't read a lease. And I think that is probably one of the biggest problems is they don't really read what they're signing up for. And our lease is actually one of the best leases in the country. It's the Minnesota multi-housing standard form lease, which is extremely good. And it's a very well articulated, plain language act approved uh, lease. And then we have addendums that are attached to that. But even with that lease still, if you don't read it, you don't understand it. Yeah. And so a lot of it is just communicating the policies, especially sometimes when we have first-time renters out there that really don't know what's going on. And then we explain it, and, and our property managers are very good about that, about communicating, here's why, and here's what this charge is for, or here's what this rule is for, or here's why you can't park you know, a commercial vehicle you know, in front of your, your home. And so we're very sensitive about making sure that they follow the rules but we're also understanding that they may not have read their leases and they may not understand the rules. And so we sure. get, uh, and usually it's just a quick call or a quick email and that usually suffices. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Have you found a way to improve the understanding of a tenant up front? We, we have. We have an addendum to our lease called the building rules. And the building rules are the top items that the tenant really kind of needs to know like from day one. We know that they're probably not going to read their, the rest of their lease very completely, so we've extracted out all those salient high points. For example, no smoking. Uh, that's a big one. No uh, parking of uh, commercial vehicles in front of the home. You know, those are the items uh, that, um, uh, that we put in that building rules, and then we go through that with them separately from the lease so that they at least know the big ticket items of how to comply 
and then the rest of it they just have to read. Yeah. Time, so. Okay. Very good. Um, you know, there's one thing I like to cover in this show just to kind of make the mood a little bit lighter, and that is as a property manager, you often run into some interesting, crazy situations. Mm -hmm. What's something that you've experienced as a property manager that you never would have thought you would have experienced or you wouldn't otherwise as being in a different career? Oh, well, uh, yeah, every day is, is completely different. Uh, th there are a lot of surprises out there that, uh, you know, from illegal pets to people that uh, go to websites. I think the biggest thing that's happening now is that people are going to serviceanimal.com or whatever, and they're printing out service animal certificates, and they're not even legal, and there's no medical uh, authorization for them to do that. Uh, and so they just need to know that they have to do it legitimately, I think is the right thing. There's a lot of websites out there that would provide, you know, this is, this is your service animal. If it's a service animal, great, and it's treated like any other guest or resident of, of the property. No security deposit, no pet deposit. In addition to that, it's just an, an additional uh, listed uh, occupant of the home. Um, and a lot of independent landlords don't realize that. They try and charge pet deposits for service animals. Mm -hmm. But the problem, though, is that there are a lot of websites that will print these phony certificates. And so as a property manager, you just have to know what's right and what's not and, and, and make the right decisions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is there a way that a landlord can tell the difference between what's a, a, you know, a real letter from the doctor versus one of these ones printed from the website? Yes, and so we document that in our office, and uh, there's also uh, some good screening sites out there. Uh, one of them is PetScreener.com, where you can actually rec uh, have the pet screened independently of the tenant screen. And then they will also do the same thing. They will wade through and make sure that the documentation is correct and then solicit the right documents and make sure that the pet uh, uh, is screened properly. And they even provide a paw score, you know, one through five, how many paws they get, uh, if there were any, ever any incidents or, you know, biting or anything like that that's been documented previously with that pet. So it, it's the technology is helping in all fronts, and just doing the right thing uh, is the biggest goal of property managers should be to make sure that they follow the follow the law, follow the statutes, uh, have good documentation, uh, keep good records, and uh, and then treat the tenants uh, as, as the customers that they really are. Yeah, very good. Yeah. You know, through these different experiences that you've come across, has there been any recent additions to your lease that, you know, you've had to add in because of a new experience? We do add things. Uh, we had uh, we haven't changed our lease much over the last few years. Uh, I do remember we had um, uh, a pet agreement, and we used to have the tenants sign the pet agreement at move-in, and we would have a representative there at move-in. And we had one tenant that filled out an extra pet that wasn't disclosed, and it wasn't caught by the property manager. They they uh, knew that there was a pet, but they didn't know that there were two. Okay. And so, unfortunately, the HOA had a rule that only allowed one pet. And so there was a monthly fine for, um, for having an additional pet. Well, we ended up paying the fine ourselves because it was our mistake that we didn't mm -hmm. catch. Uh, but then at the end of the lease, we told the tenant, you either have to reduce the number of pets to one, uh, or you can move on and find another place to live, but we're not going to be able to rent to two because we're not going to be able to pay the fine. So we honored our lease, we honored the agreement, but uh, we did make it known to the tenant that this wasn't disclosed in the application and it was 
it was a mistake and it shouldn't have happened. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. It's just another thing to watch out for. Another there. thing to watch out for, right? So, well, listen, one thing that you mentioned earlier on, actually a few th times you've mentioned it, is just the customer relationship mm -hmm. and customer service. Mm -hmm. So how do you make sure that that gets attended to, you know, while balancing some, which is sometimes an adversarial relationship with our tenants? With the tenants. Well, we walk sort of a fine line between the owners that we do agency management for and their properties and the tenants that are, that are our customers. They're not our clients. The tenants are the customers. And that fine line is the balance between good customer service and making sure that the tenant is, uh, is uh, responsible you know, for their uh, side of the deal, their side of the contract. And we do hold them responsible, but we also find times where there is a customer service or a gray area where uh, we don't know how that damage got caused. We, we don't know that it was, uh, for example, there previously. Documentation says it probably wasn't. Uh, the tenant obviously would not have caused damage like that intentionally. And otherwise, you know, it's a $300,000 home with great, great tenants and they're... So sometimes you have to use your judgment as a property manager. And the result of good customer service to a tenant is longer tenancy, uh, less turnover, less vacancy between tenants. You have a better pool of tenants, a better reputation for supporting the tenants. And the bottom line is the owner ultimately is served uh, a huge benefit. And that benefit is long-term tenancy with responsible adults. And I think most of our owners, in fact, I would say almost all of our owners get it. The ones that don't usually will uh, let them go and they can go find another management company. But that's so important because that is going to impact your cash flow way more uh, than trying to nickel and dime uh, a tenant or trying to uh, withhold a security deposit, for example, that's, that's, that's excessive or overreaching. You know, that kind of uh, service comes back to bite you. And so you don't want to do it. And I think the bottom line is that the cash flow, even with our fees, are going to be way better. An owner, uh, instead of representing themselves as a DIY landlord, can hire a management company. And the goal would be to hire the best management company because with that longer term tenancy, our average tenancy is a little over three years, about 3.4 years. And if you go to a discount management company, they may save you 10 or 20 bucks a month in management fees. But the bottom line is their average tenancy is going to be about 1.2 years. And you do the math. And if you're constantly paying leasing fees and turnover fees and then have a month of vacancy between tenants, your cash flow is going to be in the dumpster. Uh, absolutely. And so you have to recognize that having a better management company is going to make all the difference and your long-term cash flow is going to be significantly better. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, uh, taking this conversation and applying it to larger multifamily properties, have you seen any great ways to create community in the, um, in the building so that, you know, tenants really enjoy living in that neighborhood and, well, in, you know, inside the building and, and invite their friends to come and join us at this building because it's a great place to live? I think the biggest thing is, to, is being responsible, being there and having good communication and following through on what matters to that community within that building. Uh, I think having standardized policies and making sure that you're treating everyone the same is extremely important. Uh, I think having a regular communication of things that are going on or what's happening in the area 
is important. We do newsletters uh, to that extent so people feel like they're a part of the local community. Um, doing the maintenance and doing it quickly and responsibly and getting it done is probably the best thing you can do to make people feel like they're they're loved. You know, they're living in a building and the, and the hallway just got recarpeted. Wow, this is exciting. And they see that and they see hope for their community. They don't just see their rents going out for nothing coming back. And I think that's the biggest thing you can do uh, in a multifamily arrangement is to continue that drumbeat of, of, of improvements, of maintenance, of upgrades, of uh, newsletters, and to build uh, an atmosphere of, of, of a welcoming atmosphere for the people yeah. that live there. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been thinking about doing a newsletter to my uh, rentals, mm -hmm. and uh, curious, do you do it electronically, or do you actually yep. ma mail a yep. newsletter? You can just uh, write it up uh, either uh, in a, just a simple Word document, convert mm -hmm. it to a PDF, and, and scoot it out by email. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we've got some pretty good management software where we can... Uh, actually post those to a portal. And so our tenants and our owners have a portal they can log in and they can see all their monthly statements and they can even create custom statements. But then they'll see their newsletter, they'll see maintenance invoices and receipts, and they'll see everything that documents everything. And sometimes we'll even upload pictures of their home too. If we, We've got owners that live all over the world and, and they appreciate that too. So I think the portal is one of the, the best ways to communicate. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, listen, um, the other part of your relationship besides working with the tenants is working with the owners. Yep. And sometimes, especially the uh, larger property owners, investors, they might kind of talk about managing the manager. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've heard that term before, mm -hmm. but um, how do you kind of establish expectations with owners so that they're really confident in the services that you're going to provide so that they don't have to worry about you doing your job? I think a lot of it is just going to be simple trust in the day-to-day -day working for the investor and making sure that things are getting done. Uh, the very first thing we do with investors is be very clear with them that we're in an agency role with them, but you're giving us power of attorney and certain delegated uh, tasks that we have our judgment uh, allows us to do. Uh, creating leases, terminating leases, evicting tenants, we make all those decisions. We also make the security deposit withhold decisions. And the reason that we've taken that away from the individual investor is because most of them don't want to be involved. They don't want to be uh, a target for liability for withholding a security deposit. So we hold them all in trust and then we take uh, the full responsibility for making security deposit decisions. And we make very good ones, appropriate ones for the marketplace, good business decisions that get the, the money uh, for legitimate damages but doesn't overreach and doesn't cause animosity or, or doesn't lead to litigation. And so that's, a, that's an experience line that we walk. And most of the investors don't have that, uh, that rental experience to be able to make those decisions well. And maybe one story I can tell you is there was a, this is a different management company and we had this owner come to us uh, and relayed the story and we said, well, it doesn't look like you're gonna be a good fit for our company and here's why. And the owner basically convinced the property manager at the, his old management company to withhold $30,000 for scratched floors uh, and to put in all brand new floors and get a quote for replacing all the floors brand new. And there weren't even that many scratches in the floor and it was repairable, uh, which is the other thing. So the property manager said, well, that doesn't sound like a good idea to me, but then they went ahead and were convinced by the investor owner to do that. 
So they withheld 30,000, charged the rest to the tenant, and threatened court action. And it wasn't the management company that took the tenant to court. It was the tenant that took the management company and the owner to court and won. And the entire thing was thrown out. And it just shows you that a lot of times individual owners may not know what the right thing to do is or what the court would determine is reasonable. And in some cases, many statutes don't have uh, case law. For example, Minnesota is, is a state that we live in that has no case law for security deposit withholds. Ordinary uh, and uh, reasonable uh, use um, is not defined by case law. So no security deposit has made it all the way up to the appellate level court and, been to t and, and, and had a, a case law uh, written against it uh, indicating what you know, uh, the damages you know, are, you know, ordinary wear and tear. No one's defined ordinary wear and tear by case law. Okay. And it's not defined in the statutes. So again, you bring your experience. You, you, you know, management companies that are experienced have gone to court they know where some of the lines are drawn and what some of the, the county judges would consider ordinary, and um, and they don't overstep that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, definitely yeah. relying on your experience, which, again, mm -hmm. is going to be far broader uh, than the single owner exactly. would have. Yep. Um, again, talking about the management um, uh, responsibilities, how often would you suggest that either – somebody from your management company or even the owner themselves visit the rental property? Well, and that's a great question, and there's a lot of debate on that. Um, we, it depends on the segment that you're in. Uh, multifamily, it's certainly easier because you may even have an on-site manager or on-site uh, uh, maintenance coordinator that sees the property when they're doing maintenance. When you have a single-family home situation, though, they're scattered to the wind. It's a shotgun blast across the, the metro area, and you have to decide what am I going to gain from doing an inspection? And what am I going to lose from doing an inspection in terms of time, money, and expense that you'd have to charge to the owner? And what we found is that we screen our tenants to an extremely high bar. And the uh, incidence of interior damage is extremely low. In fact, our delinquency rate for 500 properties, we have about, about three or four evictions a year on 500 properties. And we only have about a dozen or so late payments, uh, typically because uh, we do all ECH rent collection and they just forgot to put the money in the right account is what it usually boils down to. Hmm. So the bottom line is when you screen to such a high bar, the last thing that an extremely responsible tenant wants to hear when you hand them the keys as they check in is, okay, here's your keys. We'll see you in three months for your first quarterly inspection. And that goes over like a ton of bricks. And all it does is it reduces tenancy because people do not want to live where they're scrutinized or they have regular property visits. And so they move. And that move costs a huge amount of money for the owner in terms of vacancy, turnover, uh, all of that. And so we found that unless there's cause, uh, there's not really a need to do an interior inspection. We do, uh, we do erratic um, unscheduled drive-bys and do exteriors. So we know if there's any exterior damage or violations of the lease. We also uh, will solicit uh, association or neighborhood complaints, any police calls, any late payments, anything that gives us pause to think, hmm, I wonder what's going on there because this is a, this is not, they're not following the rules. Then yes, we will schedule an interior inspection. 
any of those items also would subject the tenant to a rescreening in order to um, renew their lease as well. And so we just make sure that, uh, that there's a reason to go into their property because otherwise it's considered a privacy uh, issue and, it, and there's not that much to be gained. I mean, certainly if we get a tip off that there's an illegal pet or something, we're gonna do an inspection, but, uh, but typically we found that this is the best middle ground that uh, okay. balances customer service as well as uh, enforcement of the lease. So basically just kind of as needed, if there's a, if there's a cause yes. you know, or a, something that comes up, yep. you might uh, have an interior inspection, but aside from that, you kind of just let them we, we let them be, and the tenancies uh, end up being very good, and, and people are in, in compliance. We almost never have security deposit damages that exceed the security deposit on file, uh, and that's the same with, the, with pet damages as well. Uh, I can't even think of a time when the security deposit uh, damages exceeded the deposit on file. It's been a few years at least. Yeah. yeah. Well, very good. So... Uh, next in our show, I actually have a question from our audience. So I'm just going to take a moment to pull that up here. Hey, John. Sean Waite, uh, Hastings, Minnesota. Question for you. If I buy a rental properties um, and have a property manager, how can I make sure that they're doing a good job even when I'm like down, down south here uh, traveling and spending the winter for a couple of months away? That's a great question, and we have snowbirds, and we have – uh, owners that uh, live all over the world and uh, want to keep tabs on their property. The best thing that we do is offer a portal uh, that has all their monthly financials in it. It has uh, invoices from vendors. We have a product uh, that uh, facilitates communication uh, between owners, uh, us, and the handyman and, uh, or the contractor and the tenant uh, in a very coordinated way so that uh, if there is a maintenance event, the owner is kept apprised of what's going on and what the communications are and what the decisions are. So if there's an HVAC issue, for example, and they know that uh, uh, the repair is pending a part, you know, the owner's going to know that through that uh, email chain uh, as well as the tenant. And uh, so that's a great way for them to stay in touch with what's going on, what's a closed maintenance order, what's open, what's pending. And, uh, and the reasons that, uh, that it's uh, not completed. Okay. Yeah. So an owner, when they're looking at different management companies, make mm -hmm. sure that they have a portal right. that uh, you can stay up to date on everything. So have a portal and have a process-oriented and embedded uh, maintenance um, system built into the uh, management software. Okay. Mm -hmm. Very good. Well, just briefly, I want to talk to our audience. And thanks, Sean, for uh, submitting his question. And if anybody else has something they're wondering about for how to manage their rental properties, uh, we'd love to have you submit your question to the show. Chances are, if you're wondering about it, somebody else is too, and so we can all kind of learn together and benefit together. So there will be some instructions in the show notes if you'd like to go ahead and submit a question. So thank you. And uh, so the next part I want to talk about is our maximizing our income, or mm -hmm. maximizing the value of the property. Mm -hmm. Um, as you know, especially for strictly investment properties, larger multifamily, they're really valued based on the income minus the expenses. Um, so what systems or processes have you found to, to improve the income of the property and reduce the expenses of the property? Well, there's two trains of thought. As a, as a normal, responsible landlord that's looking to maximize revenue, 
your goal is to maintain the property, provide great customer service, provide a great community for the tenants to live in, and give them no reason to move. And they're going to stay year after year after year, even with rent increases. That's what's going to maximize your long-term cash flow. When you're trying to maximize your value, um, you have to decide, why am I doing that? And what am I doing it for? Because you can maximize value by being very uh, cheap with the maintenance decisions, by deferring maintenance, by deferring community upgrades, by not doing a newsletter, by not making it community-oriented. And at the end of the day, your cash flow is going to be really high. But that's not going to last for very long. And then you're going to start to have turnover. You're going to start to have um, complaints. And you're start to, going to have a bad reputation. And you're not going to be able to attract good tenants anymore. You're not going to be able to command good rents. So you can see that those are both sides of the exact same valuation equation. And you have to decide as an investor, am I here for the long term or the short term? And hopefully you're in it for the long term. You're in it to provide a responsible, well-maintained place for people to live. And that's the way we look at property management is we're providing a value. We're helping people live in nice, great places. And we don't want it to fall apart. We don't want it to spiral down. We don't want the services to diminish over time. And so that's the difference. That's the unfortunate thing with multifamily is it's valued by cap rate. And you'll find that you can define a cap rate, but that cap rate is going to change over time if, you, if it's stilted too far one direction or the other. If you don't do the maintenance right or if you're not making good maintenance decisions, you're underinvesting in the property. And yeah, your cap rate's going to be higher for the short term. That's great if you're going to sell the property, but in the long term, it's going to come back and bite you. So are there um, revenue sources that property owners might pursue that are kind of counterproductive? They're you know, bringing you the wrong result like you're talking about? Like a revenue source? Or? Like um, if just trying to squeeze everything you can out of the tenants by uh, charging for this and charging for that. Well, certainly having a fee-based approach or unbundling and providing some unbundled services is a good thing because maybe not all tenants want free internet or maybe they don't want access to the pool, for example. So maybe unbundling and charging a fee or having an access card for a separate service can be a good thing. And it also helps you as a landlord identify what services are worth keeping and charging for and which ones nobody really wants and you should just abandon. So I think that's the tool for some of the fee-based services. But if you overreach, you know, you, you're not going to be successful as a landlord. I remember at one of our association meetings, there was a whole list, a page full of all the different types of fees that you could charge a tenant. Everything from application to screening to the pet fee to move-in fees. It was just, it was literally a page long. And, and a comment was made that if you charged all those fees, you wouldn't have any customers. And that's exactly true. Is you have to be very careful and conscientious when you're, uh, when you're creating a structure. You have to only take the fees that actually support the service with a reasonable profit because it also is a very competitive industry as well. And if you do that and you focus on the customer, you're going to win every day. It's going to be a home run every day. Yeah. Yep. Well, it looks like a lot of thought needs to go into it, yep. making sure you're choosing those right uh, revenue sources. Um, have you found any uh, repair uh, or um, materials that you can use that would increase the longevity of a property so that you know, you're not having to replace something 
every year or every yeah. few years? And that's that's another great question. It's the focus of the landlord or the property manager is, is when you do an upgrade, you know, are you just putting in the lowest cost countertop, for example? Are you putting in the, the, the beige, white, uh, formica countertop that uh, no one really likes and it's in the industrial grade? And that's... You know, it's, it's, it's a decision that some investors look at. It's like, oh, it's a no-brainer. Just pick the lowest cost and put it in. But if you put a little thought behind it and think, well, this is the kitchen. This is where people spend, you know, most of their day. Do you think that having at least one or two upgrades from that basic entry-level countertop would matter? Do you think it would affect tenancy, the length of tenancy or customer satisfaction or the ability to get a higher rent? And I think that there's not enough of those decisions being made by investors. Uh, they tend to look at the bottom of a spreadsheet for their answers. They don't look at their customers' eyes and the people that are actually moving into their properties for the right answer. And I think that's important as investors need to uh, take their eyes off of the spreadsheet sometimes and look. Same thing with single families. Uh, some of the worst single family home investments have been brought in by investors. We have these single-family homes that have the complete dysfunctionality. It's a detached garage in Minnesota. That's that's the first problem. Uh, not a showstopper, but it's you know it's an annoyance. And then then the second floor has the master bedroom, and then the basement is is the uh, third bedroom. Ostensibly, it could be for a, a child or baby, or it could be for another guest or whatever. The bottom line, though, oh, and then when you come in from the garage you have to go across the living room to get to the kitchen in order to put your groceries in. So if you add up a list of those kinds of dysfunctionalities, you're, you end up reducing the appeal to a broader and broader number of potential tenants, and you're shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah. And so when you're doing upgrades or when you're buying and acquiring properties in the first place, the first question that I think of when I see a property that I want to buy is, would I live there? Yep. You know? And, and that might even be important from a tax basis, too, because uh, you can um, you have a, what's called a recapture tax uh, when you sell properties, all the accumulated depreciation. The one way uh, per uh, Pub 527 and Pub 523 from the IRS, if you move back into a property, reestablish it as a primary residence, you can sell it and you can get that principal residency exclusion from uh, Pub 523. You know, 500000 if you're married, 250000 if you're single. Um, with obvious provisions uh, against that as well. But the bottom line is you might move into your property at some point or your children might move into it uh, or friends. Um, and so uh, you have to understand that you want to buy a property that is functionally has a broad, the broadest appeal possible and then you're going to have the best chance of having a minimum vacancy and the maximum cash flow. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's really great. I mean, like you mentioned, investors often look at the bottom line because they, mm -hmm. they need to make the numbers work. And, and if they have investors coming in, they have to be happy with their returns. But, um, you know, making sure that the property upon purchase is good quality and then also the upgrades that you make. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a really important mm -hmm. things to consider. Um, one thing that I like to talk about is the life, life cycle of an investment property. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the acquisition and disposition of it, those are pretty similar uh, stages in terms of a transaction going on. Mm -hmm. What is the property manager's role in either of those phases? Well, I think the property manager needs to 
have co clear communication with the investor that that the property components aren't going to last forever. I mean, carpeting wears out, appliances wear out, uh, even paint. You know, we use a ten-year life cycle uh, for for paint. Um, you know, that wears out. You know, everything is going to need maintenance and. And owners need to know, and they need to budget for it. And I think that's one of the biggest things we tell our our owners and investors: is you need about six months worth of reserve uh, to have against a rental property, so that you can properly uh, maintain it and do the upgrade. Now, it's not to say that you're going to be constantly upgrading your property along the way, but certainly at strategic points, uh, namely at, at tenant turnovers, is a perfect time to go in and say, let's repaint it, let's put in new carpet. Let's get these appliances pulled and put decent ones in. That's a good time to do it, even though that we still do those sorts of things, even while there is a tenant in place. And tenants usually don't mind. They're like, oh, you want to replace my carpet? Let me help you. <laughs> and it's a pretty easy sell uh, to do upgrades while the tenant's there. And then when their lease renews, you know, you can just say, well, you know, this is part of our upgrade and the, the rent's going to go up 50 bucks and they're going to be like, that's fine. That's fair. And uh, we just appreciate you doing the upgrades. So they understand and they get it that it, it costs money to keep a property up to date. And as a landlord, you don't want to be afraid of upgrading your property or putting money into your property. It's going to help you uh, in a multiple number of ways, including longer tenancy, keeping that tenant longer, keeping them happy, a better property. The tenant's going to take better care of a better property. And if they see that the landlord cares about it, they're going to care about it too. And so... It's really important to 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 do it right. Uh, I think that's the thing. You can't cut corners in property management. You've got to do it right. You got to uh, identify those things. Help the owners understand that you know there are going to be times where you know there's going to be some money that goes in. Yeah, and we just have to do it. You mentioned a budget. Mm -hmm. Do you typically help out owners create their budget for their property, or do they instruct you? Typically, for that? they do. We recommend that owners get a full property inspection at least every five years, and so that's what we recommend that they do. And uh, and if they did that, typically they're going to know based on that inspection what components are starting to wear and which ones are going to be uh, due for um, uh, for replacement. And then we'll help them make those decisions and we'll help guide them as to when the best time is to make those decisions. And we can help because we have a very extensive vendor network through our HandyQuick uh, maintenance company and we can get decent prices and get the vendor's attention and get the, the things done very timely uh, in the middle of a very short turnover. So their impact on their cash flow is extremely minimal and owners are typically thrilled, uh, especially when they see the pictures. It's like, wow, this is great. And I'm getting more rent for it, and it's it's maintained, and I know it's going to be a long-term investment. My goal with real estate, maybe it's different than most, but as an investor, my goal is to buy properties and never sell them. Uh, if you own rental properties, there's no reason to sell because they cash flow. And if you've got something that's cash flowing, buy more. <laughs> uh, there's not really a reason unless you have a need for cash to sell a property or unless you're doing a 1031 and converting to other properties. But uh, typically, it's uh, an investment that you put in your back pocket. You hand the keys to the property manager, and then you forget about it. And you work your day not worrying about your current property, but worrying about where you're going to buy the next property from and how you're going to acquire it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, as uh, an owner maybe takes their eyes off the property mm -hmm. and lets the manager take the wheel, mm -hmm. what are some key numbers that they should still check back in on, maybe on a quarterly basis or something? 
Well, they should look to see if there's any history of maintenance, uh, and they should uh, look if there's any budgeted items uh, from their uh, five-year inspection to see if there's anything that, that they should be upgrading or starting to budget for. Um, they should look at what their uh, delinquencies are. Uh, typically, they'll see those in their statements if there's a late payment or something, and they can see if there's an issue that's starting to emerge or not. And we see that, of course. And um, they can also do a comparison and see if the rents are appropriate. We actually have a, uh, a page on our website, 33rdcompany.com, where you can get a free rental analysis, and it goes right out to a nationwide database of rentals, and you can put in your address and you can see what the current market rate rent is for your property. And I think that's a great thing for owners to do is not just do it once when they sign up, but do it periodically and especially do it when the, uh, there's a turnover and the tenant's leaving and we're going to put it back up for lease. Uh, our managers will obviously know the information, but it's good for the owners to know. And then they can validate what the current market rate is for a well-maintained similar property is. And then they can make sure that their rental uh, income is competitive. Yeah. Yeah, speaking of uh, rents going up, I have you been experiencing what we all have with just uh, kind of surprising increases over yeah. the last couple of years? Yeah, I think a lot of it boils down to the lack of rentals, the lack of actual housing stock, in fact. Uh, if you uh, go back to 2008 at the housing crash, you know, everything fell apart. The builders stopped building. Uh, the remodelers almost came to a standstill, and then the handymen were quite busy. Uh, and that's because uh, everyone stayed in their homes that could, and then there were a lot of foreclosures for those that couldn't. Uh, but the bottom line is that you didn't hear hammers swinging again until about 2013, and that's when new construction finally started to perk up. Well, we lost probably about five to 700,000 homes uh, nationwide per year uh, uh, for each of those years that the hammers weren't swinging. And so that's a huge uh, shortage of single-family homes that's in the marketplace right now. And like I said before, that, that's not being made up by builders jumping in there and building inventory. Uh, it's, it's made up by new people wanting to buy a home. They negotiate with a builder, and they build one home. And then another uh, person decides they want to build a home, and they build one home. And so the inventory is going to take a decade or two for it to resolve itself. In the meantime, we're, we have a housing shortage, and it's whether you're buying a house or renting a house, it's a shortage. And so that's why multifamily has been able to jump in very quickly and fill the void. Um, with that, however, you know, that's a lifestyle difference. Some people don't want to live in multifamily, uh, or they live in it, and then when they get married, or they have a pet, or they have whatever, now they want a fenced yard in, in suburbia with a single-family home, and you know, your, your life changes over time. And unfortunately, I think for the single-family home side, there's going to be a permanent shortage of homes for at least 10 more years or maybe even 20 years mm. before that void is filled. In the mean and that's why the rents are, are going up at an incredible pace. And also the, the value of real estate, single-family homes, has gone up at a pretty incredible pace. In 2015, 14, 15, 16, and 17, we were looking at 6, 7, 8% annual median price increases across the country. I think last year, 2019, was a little bit over 8% as an annual increase for a median single-family home. And that's the reason, is because you can't build them fast enough, and now it, it costs more to build because of all the rules. California has a new uh, uh, rule that uh, 
require solar panels to be installed in a home. That's about a five to $10,000 cost now that new home buyers can't afford. And now it's a state statute. Requirement. Yeah. So with that being said, and you're, you're thinking 10 to 20 years mm -hmm. until we kind of stabilize the um, availability of housing, mm -hmm. uh, would you then project that uh, we're going to continue to see these rent increases? Uh, I, I think so. And, and as a tenant, you know, the, you can look at the rent increases with panic, or you can look at it as uh, at least I can get into a home and maybe paying a little bit more rent and getting a responsible landlord is better than just fishing around for the cheapest rent. Because there are landlords out there that are, that are not going to be investing in their properties, and they're not going to be doing the right thing, and you might pay a little less in rent, but you're going to have a horrible experience as a tenant. And so be careful because, because the market is competitive uh, and, uh, and, and it's, it's expensive and getting more expensive. The landlords that do the right thing, typically those rents are going to be a little higher. Uh, but they're going to uh, benefit from having better tenants that uh, are going to recognize that and stay in there. Yeah. yeah. One other uh, question related to projections of the rental market. Um, how do you see tenant expectations changing in any way from in terms of use of technology or incorporating parking or just whatever else you might see? There's certainly the younger generation is more, uh, I want it now uh, kind of thing. Uh, and, and they can get it now. They can, with through technology, they can get access to property information real time. Uh, for example, the self-showing uh, service that we have, they can drive up to the curb type in their information and get a lockbox code right then and there and go in and see a property. And that's all current technology. Um, they can pay by ACH direct debit so they don't have to write checks anymore. That's a no-brainer technology. We implemented that uh, probably about 15 years ago. Um, as far as maintenance, they can go online and put in an online maintenance request and get automated email showing where the vendor is and when he's coming and what, what the issue is. And and, uh, and all of that is tracked so the tenant now can have visibility and control and understanding of what the maintenance is. Of, you know, when's that refrigerator going to get fixed? Oh, the vendor's coming this afternoon at 4. You know, that's the latest email. And so that's really important for them to see that because they're busy and they're, they've got jobs and they're running around and they don't want to have to chase down a landlord or, uh, or a vendor to understand what's going on with their property. Lease renewals, we automate that whole process. So literally, they can go right on and electronically sign their documents right then and there. And, and in the span of a minute, they can just log in, review their lease, make sure everything is correct, and then click on uh, accept. And so that kind of automation is, is not just uh, available, but it's expected in the marketplace. Yeah. And I think that's one of the other stumbling blocks for individual landlords that are trying to do a DIY uh, is that they don't have any of those tools. And it causes a lot of frustration with tenants and uh, causes some animosity and, and mistrust because the tenants aren't aware of what's going on. Yeah, a lot of times for that single owner, either it might be a cost thing or just a awareness of what tools are out there. Right. Uh, it might not make sense that with having one unit, but again, if you have hundreds, then mm -hmm. it makes sense. Makes sense, yeah. So, well, listen, I have really enjoyed all of the discussion we've had here today. I think we've covered a lot. Um, before I let you go, I want to just ask a couple of quick questions that would allow the audience to get to know you better. Okay. Um, so the first question I have here is, why do you get up in the morning? Uh, <laughs> I like people. Uh, I think, and I tell the staff all the time, that the P 
and the M in property management really stands for people management. And property management is all about people. It's about helping people get what they want. It's about answering questions. It's about giving them direction, giving them goals and, and opportunities. And that's what I do every day. And I think that's really what puts a smile on my face is, is at the end of the day, I know I've helped people uh, get their housing, get approved, go through a process that uh, can be sometimes lengthy, but do it efficiently and get them moving. Uh, okay, wonderful. And then the second question is, what is an event or a person in your past that was monumental in your journey to creating who you are today? Just, just in general or? Yeah. Oh, um, you know, I think I'd have to go, go way back uh, to my ninth grade math teacher. I was taking uh, uh, a math uh, algebra class, and this is right at the beginning of the first of, of my ninth grade year, and he noticed that I was doing very well, and I was studying and working really hard, and he said, you know, um, I teach geometry third period, and how would you like to take that class too, and then you'd be in the accelerated math program, and I was like, oh my god, it just totally uh, took me back, uh, uh, and I said, sure, I'd love to do that. And I not only did that, but then I also got into the chemistry program uh, by taking uh, the biology course in the summer school. And then I was in accelerated uh, science as well. And it just took someone that looked at me and, and trusted me and said, hey, you're doing good. Here's an opportunity. And I really uh, was surprised and, and just thrilled. And so I've been trying to do that. Uh, my life, and I've been an instructor, uh, Navy, Navy pilot and uh, Navy flight instructor. I'm an instructor for the National Association of Residential Property Managers, and I love giving back in that very same way as helping people, giving them the tools, the understanding, the knowledge they need to be successful, and that is the most rewarding thing that I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I appreciate that. I, I know just when I think about interacting with other people, mm -hmm. it's the people that have taken notice in me mm -hmm. that I feel have really made an impact on me, just like you yeah. gave that example. Yeah. So, yeah, if you can intentionally do that for other people, I think you can help to make this world a better place. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, well, as we wrap things up, what would be the best way for people to be, get in touch with you if they'd like to learn more about you? So we're uh, located in Woodbury. We serve the full uh, Twin Cities metro area, first and second tier suburbs, seven counties. We also serve Rochester. Our website is 33rdcompany.com. Our Kansas City website is 33rdcompanykansascity.com. And uh, our phone number, if you wanted to call, is 651-777-5500. And uh, we'd be happy to help you no matter what type of uh, management activity you're looking for. Okay, wonderful. By the way, um, where did the name 33rd Company come from? 33rd Company, I was a Naval Academy midshipman in the early 80s. And the brigade of midshipmen had uh, 36 companies in the brigade. And I was in the 33rd Company. Okay. So when I started the company in 1993, uh, I looked back and thought, well, what companies have I been in before? And uh, that came up. And it's kind of a quirky name, but it's um, got a military uh, heritage to it. And uh, it's been a great, uh, great name for our company. And, uh, yeah. So, well, that's neat yeah. uh, and helpful to understand. By the way, thank you for your service yeah. to our country. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. So, and as a way of showing my appreciation for you coming in today, I have a small token, uh, which is our official Maximizing Your Property Value mug. Perfect. And I hope you will enjoy that as well. 
Are you more likely to uh, drink coffee, tea, hot chocolate, or any of the above? Okay. <laughs> I, I do drink a lot of coffee more than I should, but uh, this will help. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, again, I appreciate you coming in, mm-hmm. and I appreciate it to our audience for tuning into the show. If you got anything out of this, be sure to share it out, and um, we'd really love to get your comment and even your review on the Apple Podcasts. And uh, appreciate you listening. We'll catch you next time. The opinions shared on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be taken as a solicitation for representation or investments in any specific offering. Please consult with your financial, legal, tax, and real estate advisor before making any investment decisions. John Stiles is a licensed Minnesota real estate agent with Bridge Realty. Thanks for tuning in to Maximizing Your Property Value, the apartment owner's guide to operating rental properties as a successful business. If you're considering scaling up, downsizing, or right-sizing your real estate investment portfolio, it's important to know how to determine your property's value in today's market. That's why I've put together a free ebook for you called How to Calculate Your Investment Property's Value. To get your copy, go to www.realestatestyles.com forward slash value. Now, if you found any value in today's show, be sure to subscribe to our email newsletter, YouTube channel, and podcast through your favorite podcast player. All the links are in the show notes. And would you do me a big favor? Help me get the word out about this show by sharing with your friends on Facebook and LinkedIn. And lastly, we appreciate your five-star rating on iTunes. I really appreciate you and wish you the best in your real estate investing career. Signing off, I'm John Stiles with Bridge Realty. Make it a great day.